more time, stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through verse 33, hear the reading of God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, would you help us now? Would you help me as I preach to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you also help us, though, to receive this word in the power of the Holy Spirit? There's so much here in this text that runs quite counter to the culture around us. And it, it well could be that we find this text offensive to our fleshly sensibilities. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to have hearts that just bend in obedience to your word. And I pray that you would enable me to help speak to the, the details of this in a way that's helpful, that would enable husbands to live in ways that's honoring to Christ and wives to live in a way that's honoring to Christ. For those who are not married and perhaps aspire to be, to have a picture of what they're striving for. Father, would you do all of this for our good and for your glory? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Any time that I've preached on either this text or the topic of marriage, my guess is I've probably begun that sermon by noting how challenging it is. It's challenging for a number of reasons, and I could go through all of them, but really the one that weighs most on my heart when I stand in the pulpit and preach on marriage that weighs most on my heart is just the pastoral burden of preaching on a text like this. It's difficult pastorally, and the reason why is because I've, I've walked with a number of you and know your particular situations. Some of you 
are married and have been married for years and you're happily married. Others of you are newlyweds. Some of you are living in marriage with a spouse and you're suffering greatly. And if the details of that suffering came out, it would bring pain to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Others of you are married to an unbelieving spouse. Perhaps that's bringing great suffering in your life. Others are living with an unbelieving spouse and perhaps in some ways finding contentment, although you indeed pray for and wish your spouse were converted. Some of you are single and finding great contentment. Others of you are single and not quite content. Desperately wishing to be married. Many others would be widowed. Some have suffered through divorce. And are now single, others have suffered through divorce and are now remarried. And as lengthy as that was, my guess is there are a number of you sitting out there right now who said he really didn't touch on my situation. And as a pastor, my heart longs to take you and your exact situation and address you specifically. I I just want to do that. A great fear I have is that I'm going to preach on this text and this topic and and not speak to your particular struggle and your particular issue. And I, I wish I could do that, but the setting simply does not allow that to take place. But I'll tell you what I have done. I've decided to take two weeks... In light of some particulars that I did want to flesh out, I've decided to take two weeks to preach on one text. I think this is the first time in 24 plus years of pastoring here that I've done that. And, and the reason that came about is I was mowing the grass one day. So many of my stories start with mowing the grass, don't they? I realize that. I spend a lot of time mowing, uh, whether the grass needs it or not. I need to get out and walk. So I was, I was listening, I, I tell the interns, when you're preaching a book, just read it again and again and again. Well, one way you can do that is, is listen to it. And so I was listening through the book of Ephesians, knowing I was going to be preaching it. And I got to this section, 5, 22 through 33, and as I listened to it, I, I hit pause. And I, I just stopped and I thought through Again, much of it just in light of pastoral ministry, just walking with you all the things that I thought I wanted to hit. And when I thought through all of the details and the angles that I wanted to attack, I I thought to myself, good grief, that's going to be a really long sermon. And then I had this brilliant idea. Now, now follow me on this. The logic is complex. I said to myself, wait a second. I make the sermon card. And so there's no reason that I can't spend two weeks on this text. And so I decided to, and my only failure in foresight is maybe I should have said three. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to start, this is part one of a two-part sermon on Ephesians 5, 22-33, and therefore it may end with some of you feeling a bit dissatisfied, wishing that, wishing that I've gotten to this point or that or addressed this or that, but we're, we're going to keep moving. We're going to get there. Before I outline how I want to approach the sermon this morning as well as next week, let me just lay out a little bit about the structure, how I think Paul is moving as we continue to move through the book of Ephesians. You remember in, in the text we saw last time when we looked at Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, 
Paul was outlining what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And so he talked about uh, you're going to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks to the Father. And then he ended that in verse 21 saying, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what that did, what verse 21 did, is it it carries two functions. It, It in some sense wrapped up what Paul was saying, this is what being filled with the Spirit looks like, but it also then serves as a headline, a transition point to show us where Paul was going next. Because what he was going to do when he says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, if you ask Paul the question, submitting what way? What does that look like, Paul? He says, that's where I'm going to take you. And he outlines three relationships between human beings that involve submission. So he then fleshes it out in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands in in chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in chapter 6, verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. So, So he's going to dive into three complex, challenging human situations where there's submission involved, and he's going to flesh out what this looks like in each of them. The first one he does is he deals with wives and husbands, which interestingly, he starts with wives submitting to their own husbands, and he spends most of his time speaking about husbands and how they relate to their wives. So, that's where we're going to head. That's where we're going over the next few weeks. This morning, what I want to do is I want to, I want to speak, first of all, about the nature of marriage, what it is. If we don't understand what marriage is, the roles and tasks that God has given to the man and the woman in marriage are not going to make any sense. And we're going to feel that, that we can fudge on them in some ways, and so we need to understand how God has crafted marriage itself. Then what I'm going to do after walking through that is I'm going to then focus on husbands. Now, again, it's fair. The text does start with wives, um, but uh, it spends much more time on husbands, so I'm going to start there, and I'm not going to finish that this morning. We're going to leave that hanging, and then next week we're going to pick back up with husbands, and then we'll move to wives. So husbands, you get two weeks. You're welcome. This morning, then, let's dive in by first thinking about the nature of marriage. And here's what I want to say about that. Marriage has an intentional, divine design and purpose. Marriage has an intentional, divine design and purpose. I want to show you this by starting at the, near the end of our text. In chapter 5, verse 31, Paul writes this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, when Paul writes that in Ephesians 5.31, what he's doing is he's quoting Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24 is the text, the verse, the divine language that was uttered when God instituted marriage. When God began marriage, that's what he said. And no doubt you remember the context of this. In Genesis 2, God makes Adam, after having made the, uh, making the, 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 the animal world, He makes man, He makes Adam, and He charges Adam with naming all of the animals. And as Adam names the animals, he realizes there is no helper who is fit for him. 
Now, in my mind, that could have happened one of two ways. It may be that as Adam was naming the animals, he just looked around and thought to himself, giraffes or elephants or bears or what have you are quite a bit different than me. And so it doesn't look like one of them is fit for me. That may well have been how it went. I think, though, there's a chance it could have gone another way. And this is the one I lean toward. It may well have been that when Adam was naming the animals, he realized that in the animal world there were pairs. So there were bulls and cows. There are bucks and does. And honestly, I've now exhausted my ability to name (laughs) male and female. So let's just say male giraffes and female giraffes, male lions and female lions, right? I thought to myself, I can do this. I can't do that. That's, that's, as, good, that's as good as I can do. And so I, I think it probably was as he's realizing this, bucks, they have antlers and does, right? He's realizing in the creaturely world, there's male and female of all of these creatures. But when he considered himself humanity, there was just male, human. He had no helper fit for him. And so what God did is he had Adam go to sleep, and when Adam was asleep, God took a rib from his side, and with that rib from man, God formed woman. And, and, and this is why, this, this makes complete sense then in light of that whole context, that when God formed a woman and brought her to man, this is Adam's words in Genesis 2.23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. You can see why he would thought of that. I've looked at the animal world. I don't have one that, that's like me. But this is the last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is, this is a, a female human, one like me. And as soon as Adam says that, as God brings this woman to him, the Lord then institutes marriage. He brings them together as a married couple, saying, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And and with that utterance, God instituted marriage, and he established a paradigm that all of us have been keeping ever since then when we get married. In Ephesians 5.31, Paul quotes that text, God's institution of marriage in verse 31. And then he says this in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, when Paul uses the word mystery, when when we use the word mystery, we often mean something that doesn't make sense or it's perplexing, or I can't figure that out. Sometimes I think people probably talk about the mystery of marriage. You know, they maybe use that sometimes meaning like, hey, it's perplexing, isn't it? But that's not how Paul is using the word mystery here. We we could see this in other places, but for the sake of time, I won't flesh it out in detail. I'll simply say, in the book of Ephesians, when Paul uses the word mystery, what he means is something that was always true, but it was a bit clouded, a bit unclear until the coming of Christ. And it became clear. So what Paul then is saying here in verse 32 is that marriage always was to refer to Christ and the church. It was always to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and His church. But as you read the Old Testament, that, that, that's a bit cloudy. 
Now, I don't mean it's not there. It is there. And perhaps you're even thinking of texts that explicitly point it out. But it's a little cloudy until Jesus Christ comes into the world and he lives and he dies and he is raised from the dead in order to purify a bride, a people for himself to present to himself holy and spotless and without blemish and then so that they might join him in the wedding feast to come. And when Jesus does that, all of a sudden it becomes very clear, obviously, Marriage was to be a picture of Christ and the church. We read in, in, in this text, and, and to say this probably means I'm going a bit too long in the sermon, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, just, just to show you the glory of this picture, you, you think about how the Bible pictures Christ and the church. Multiple times as we read in this book, you heard in the text we read this morning, it mentions the church as his body two different times. The, 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 the scripture pictures Jesus Christ and his church as so intimately bound together that the two become one. In fact, again, in this text, we're called the body of Christ. That's how intimately bound we are with our Lord. And yet, there still remains a distinction, right? He is the Lord, we are his people. He's the Savior, we are his saved people. When we ask the question, how in the world could we begin to picture that relationship? God's answer is, I already have. That's why he gave us marriage. Marriage is created for us to be a picture in this world of Jesus Christ and his church. That's why we can say, Marriage has an intentional, divine design and purpose. And because of this, the man and the woman have distinct roles that they play in marriage. In other words, these roles are not arbitrary. The Lord does not say to us, a lot's going to go into carrying out this marriage relationship. Figure out who will play what role. And get at it. No, He's designed the man to play a specific role in marriage as a man, as the husband, to fulfill the specific role. He's designed the woman as a woman to play a specific role in marriage as the wife. These are not arbitrary. They're intentionally chosen and designed. And, and, and I want to make this very clear because we're going to walk through those specific roles. And, and, and no doubt you, you know this, and I may well say it another time, but I want to make it explicit now. The differentiated roles do not communicate a difference in value. Men and women in marriage, it's not as if one is inferior and one is superior. One is more valuable, one is less valuable. Both are made in the image of God. Both are co-heirs of the world to come. And both are absolutely essential if indeed our marriages are to picture Christ. This is one of the things that I hate about the feminist movement is that the motto that has been shouted among the feminist movement in our culture is, if women are going to be considered valuable, they must act like men. And my response is, no, that is a lie from the pit of hell, and women are valuable acting as women, as God has made them and designed them. And the differences between men and women are a glorious reality that should be treasured. So with that said, though, I do want to dive into the specific roles of husbands and wives. 
if, if you're a woman, I am not tackling the wife issue till next week. So you can perhaps sit back and go, well, I'll just relax and look at my husband the whole time this morning. Um, but we are going to start with the husband. So here's my second sermon point, um, but the first one about the husband. The husband is to picture Christ's leadership of and love for his church. The husband in marriage, and you can put this on the slides, the husband in marriage is to picture Christ's leadership of and love for his church. And now it is true that verse 22 begins, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'm going to get to that next week, but right after that in verse 23, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, notice in that verse, in verse 23, Paul does not say the husband should be the head of his wife. He says the husband is the head of his wife. Men, you will be a good and godly head, or you will be a bad and sinful head of your wife if you are married, but your headship is in escapable. It wasn't by mistake that the Lord created the man first and then created the woman after him to be his helper. Paul's actually going to pick up on that created uh, order in 1 Timothy 2.13 when he deals with the roles of men and women in the church. He's going to mention in that text the man was created first and then the woman because the man is created and then the woman is is created alongside of him to be his helper. This is why Paul can say that the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of his church. And the idea of headship implies leadership. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul's laying out the qualifications for pastors, the qualifications for men to serve as elders, pastors in the church, one of the qualifications that he explicitly notes is that the man must manage his own household well. In other words, Paul sees the responsibility for the management of the household to fall to the husband. Even as Christ is head of the church, he says, the husband is the head of his own wife. And so what I want to do now is I just want to note two ways that I think husbands can practice headship poorly and sinfully. And, and I, I, I hesitated. I thought, is it going to be helpful provide negative examples of this, but I think it is because in my own life, it's helpful to see areas where I may be failing and have fallen short. So, two areas, I think, where men can practice their headship sinfully and foolishly. On the one hand, men, you can practice your headship in your home sinfully and foolishly by ruling your home in a harsh manner and not allowing your wife to be your helper. By ruling your home, leading your home in a harsh manner, and not allowing your wife to be your helper. Now, obviously, an example of this would be the man being abusive, being 
physically or verbally abusive to his wife. Of course it includes that. But I don't want you to only think or think that the only way to be sinful in this end of the spectrum, if you will, is by being physically or verbally abusive to your wife. Men, you can sin in this area by treating your wife with a harsh and overbearing tone. This might be the men who think that my role as a husband is merely to give orders to my wife, and if I want her opinion, I'll give that to her as well. Well, that kind of thing, first of all, is sinful. It is explicitly said in Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's not sufficient, men, for you to go, that's just who I am, then repent. But it's not only said there in Colossians 3.19, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words... What the Lord is saying here is when He gives you a wife, when you take on one of God's daughters to marry her and lead her, God is saying to us, you better honor her as a co-heir of the world to come and you need to deal with her according to the prescription and the ways that I've told you to deal with her, or as her father, I'm not going to hear and answer your prayers. Man, that's a command with a threat. God takes very seriously how we treat our wives. And He will judge us. So if, if, if this morning we've realized, I am harsh and overbearing, we need to have a fear of God. And repent. It's also foolish. It's not just sinful to do this and lead your wives in that way. It's also foolish. It's foolish because the Lord has given you a helper. And if you think that your only role toward your wife is to give her orders, then you're missing the help that God has ordained to be available to you. You're ignoring the very helper he's given to walk alongside of you in life. There have been more than one occasions in my life when I have come home and thought to myself, I have a brilliant idea. And I have anticipated walking in the door and sharing that idea and hearing my wife say something like, I have heard of your brilliance and I did not know the half of it <laughs> until I've seen it today. And... And instead, what happens is I walk into my home and I share this brilliant idea and my wife says, hmm, that, that's a good idea. Have you, have you also considered this element? And in my brilliance, I think I'm going to change my plan, right? <laughs> and as, as, as much as that is funny and, and has happened to me a lot, it's happened to me a lot because the Lord has given me an amazing helper. And I have benefited from choosing a godly wife more than you could dream. At the risk of making the sermon longer, quick side note again. Men who aren't married, 
Proverbs 31 is always the text that's taken up in women's gatherings, isn't it? Women get together and they're going to study Proverbs 31 and, and see what a Proverbs 31 woman should be. That's good. I'm not putting that down. But Proverbs 31 is written by King Lemuel, and it's an oracle from his mother. In other words, Proverbs 31 is the king's mom saying to him, when you choose a wife, here's what you need to look for. And then he outlines who this woman should be. Men, read Proverbs 31. And I'll tell you, I am immensely blessed. I remember a Mother's Day or two ago, trying to think about what I could give my wife for Mother's Day because I'm a terrible gift giver. And I remember, again, mowing the lawn, thinking through Proverbs 31, listening to it, and at every verse, just stopping and being able to say, um, this is precisely how my wife feels that in my life. Um, so I am foolish in so many ways, um, but if I can take a moment to brag on myself, I chose really well with a wife. I really did. And uh, it's by the Lord's grace. And so men, you ignore the heart and the help of your helper to your own demise. And so that's, that's one way that, that we can practice headship real poorly is by being harsh and overbearing and wanting to ignore her and neglect her. But then there's also an equal and opposite error that may even be more dangerous. And the reason this one may even be more dangerous is because it's hard to notice. And in fact, from the outside, it might be praiseworthy. Everybody might praise the man who's walking in this equal and opposite error. And this equal and opposite error is the man who just wants to be nice and passive. You want to be nice and passive. Now, by nice, I don't mean kind. Men, we better be kind. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. But I mean, we want to be nice and passive in the sense that we never want to unsettle the waters. Let me, let me lay this out with an illustration of a man who's married to a wife who may be drifting away from the Lord. So, in this situation, imagine a man who, who perhaps is trying to lead his family to join a local church, and he knows in his heart that's a church that upholds the Word of God and will shape us according to what my family needs. When his wife, again, in this illustration, she's, she's drifting from the Lord, she wants to go to this church where gimmicks are the thing of the day, where they shoot Snickers bars out of cannons when the kids are baptized, right? And then she says, the kids are really excited about that. Who wouldn't be, right? <laughs> and the man knows that is not good, but I don't want to unsettle the waters. And he tries to keep a certain shallow peace in his family, and he says, okay, that's fine, as long as that makes everybody happy. 
men that is abdicating your leadership. And the calling that God has given you to manage your home in a way that's honoring to Christ. The same thing could be, again, illustration with a wife who may be drifting from the Lord and the husband says, it's just, it's just not good. I don't think it's good for our kids to have cell phones. And he comes home a week later and the kids all have cell phones. And then the wife says, I, I just thought they needed them. And he goes, okay. Right? That, that, that is not, that may feel like, everybody may even say of that guy, he's so nice. He's so nice. He's failing to walk as a man and love his home in that way. So that's, that's one way that the kind of nice and passive thing can play out. But passivity can also show itself in the form of laziness, men. Now let me give some illustrations with a godly wife and a nice and passive lazy husband. The wife comes to her husband and says, you think it would be good if maybe each evening we, we finish the evening with you gathering up the kids and leading us in prayer for them? And the husband goes, yeah, that's, that seems like a great idea. And then about 10 days pass, and the wife, by no means nagging, says to her husband, hey, you giving any more thought to getting the kids together and leading them in prayer at night? And the husband goes, oh, will you just do it? Men, what's going on in that moment is a wife attempting to honor her husband's headship and a husband utterly failing in his laziness and unwillingness, attempting to abdicate himself of that calling. Or the same thing could be if a wife says, oh, the kids are, are, are growing up a bit. We're going to get into the stage of, of needing to educate them. How do you think we need to educate the kids? And, and the husband goes, I, I don't know, you figure that out. Men, you may think to yourself, what I'm doing is commissioning my wife. No, what you're doing is saying to your wife who is trying to walk in a God-honoring way and look to you for your leadership, I do not want to lead. And that is as unloving as the man who is harsh and overbearing. So there are two ways that I think we could get this wrong, maybe on opposite ends of the spectrum, harsh and overbearing, or nice and passive and mixed into their lazy. Now, I bring up these examples, and I know I've used some negative examples there, but I'm, I'm hoping those specific examples will help us. Because in my own life, it's thinking through how this is done wrongly that has helped me see my own failures. Sadly, I can lay out for you ways that, that I failed in these areas. And so maybe just seeing these will help us understand, okay, that's not what it looks like. But you may be asking yourself, well, positively, what does it look like? What, if, if verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, what should that look like? If I am the head of my wife, what do I do? What's that look like? Let me now state it positively. I'm even going to provide it for you on the slide, just in a sentence, and here it is. Men lead their homes by ensuring that the word is faithfully believed and obeyed, pursuing the holiness of their wives and sacrificial love to the point of being willing to die for them. 
Now let me say that one more time for you. Men lead their homes by ensuring that the Word, that is the Word of God, is faithfully believed and obeyed. Pursuing the holiness of their wives in sacrificial love to the point of being willing to die for them. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to just flesh out in verses 25, 26, and 27 why I say that statement. And then next week we're going to look at fleshing that out more and then moving on to the role of the wife. So let's first look at verses 25, 26, and 27 and, and I'll hopefully show you why I've worded the sentence this way. Now, now I'll say, if, if, if you were just charged, think about what, what headship is supposed to look like. You, you might come up with a sentence that looks different from that. But what I'm trying to do is take this sentence specifically from this text. And when I do that, when I ask the question, if this is what Paul's talking about, and I ask Paul, if I'm the head, what do you, what do you picture my leadership then in my home managing my home as the head of my family, what's that look like? I think this sentence is the best I could come up with at least that, that includes these elements. So let me, let me take us again, verses 25, 26, and 27. Here's what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, so, so now he's, he's hitting at the goal, right? Why did Christ give himself over her? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So let's take first then my, my kind of uh, note pursuing the holiness of their wives. Why do I think that headship, if faithfully lived out as a man, a husband toward his wife, why do I think that this text, that headship, requires us pursuing the holiness of their wives? And it's because of verse 26 and verse 27. In verse 25, he very quickly moves to, husbands love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the rest of verse 26 and 27 is really talking about how Christ loved the church. But when he talks about that, he's picturing for us, take your cues from this, what he did, what his aims were, you do, and let your aims be. And so when he's talking about how Christ loved the church, he says, first of all in verse 26, that he might sanctify her. That is, that he might pursue her holiness, so that he might make her holy. And then in verse 27, he comes right back to it. So that, he says, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So we should think of it, men, this way. When our Heavenly Father gives us a wife, he is saying to us, I am giving you this woman to be your wife. And someday, I want you to present her back to me more beautifully holy than she was when I gave her to you. That's the responsibility we have as men, is that we are pursuing the holiness of our wives. I want, if I am married for 10 years, I want at the end of 10 years, my wife to be more beautifully holy 
than she was when we married. If we're married 20 years, I want her to be more beautifully holy at year 20 than she was at year 10. And so on and so forth, men. That is your aim. As head of your home, what am I pursuing? I'm pursuing my wife becoming more beautifully holy because Christ set out to sanctify her and to present her to Himself holy and without blemish and spotless. That's why I say we're pursuing the holiness of our wives. The reason I say that our headship involves in leading our homes, ensuring the Word of God is faithfully believed and obeyed, is because of verse 26. So notice at the beginning of verse 26, he says that he might sanctify her. That's his goal. I want her to be sanctified. And then he gives a a, a phrase describing the method that's used there. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Do you remember the scene in Ezekiel 16? And this is one of those scenes in the Old Testament where we're already seeing that the relationship of the Lord and His people is pictured in marriage because God uses that uh, image, that illustration to talk about this. And and in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, God, through the prophet, is talking about what, what His people were like. And He said, your father uh, was, were the Amorites, your mother was the Hittites, or vice versa, I can't remember exactly which one yet, one of those two. And, and he says, you were a child who was discarded, a baby who was thrown to the side of the road to die covered in your blood in afterbirth. It's a, it's a terrifying, horrible, disgusting, sad, horrific image. And God says, then I come along and I say to this child who is clearly going to die, live. And then the chapter continues in Ezekiel 16, and God says, and then I came back by later, and you had grown. He talks about how how the child grows into a woman, and yet you are still lying there, naked in your blood and the disgust of who you were as one who was unwanted and discarded. And he said, I took you, and I washed you, and I cleansed you. And I clothed you and I took you under my wing to be my own. Sadly, he's going to go on and say, and then you committed adultery and rebelled against me. But that image of God washing us and cleansing us, of getting our own blood and filth off of us, is the image here. As if the Lord is saying to us as men, I have given you a wife, sanctify her. Present me back to her, present her back to me rather one day spotless and without blemish and more beautifully holy. And I want you to wash her. That's how you cleanse her. But specifically, notice he says in verse 26 wash her, cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. That is, God is saying if you're going to pursue her cleansing, her holiness, her beauty, don't, don't, get, don't get caught up on the metaphor. It doesn't mean say, hey, you know, let's shower, right? Or get a bath or something, right? He's saying, no, no, no. Wash her with the Word. Cleanse her with the Word. In other words, the means God gives to ensure our families are walking in holiness is that we apply the Word to them. Men, we are responsible to make sure that, that our, our, our wives are believing 
and obeying the Word of God. We lavish the Word of God on them. It is for their good. It is for our good. And, and I'm going to get to that next week. Uh, the wife toward her husband and his holiness as well. But men, this is our responsibility in pursuing her holiness by making sure that the Word of God is believed, by making sure the Word of God is obeyed. And then... We lead our homes by ensuring that the Word of God is faithfully believed and obeyed, pursuing the holiness of our wives in sacrificial love to the point of being willing to die for them. And the reason I say that is because of verse 25, where Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives. And here's the way he wants us to love them. Love them as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. He says all of this, this, this pursuit of her beautifying holiness by the washing of water with the Word, I want you to do that in love. And not just in love, but in sacrificial love. A willingness to say, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Just as Jesus Christ laid down His life to the point of death to make us holy and to cleanse us, so the husband's headship of his home should manifest itself in a commitment to sacrificial love. To the point of saying, I'm esteeming you above myself. I'm willing to cost myself, if necessary, for your good and your holiness. This is not headship that says, I'm here and you're there, do what I say, right? It is a headship that says, I've been called to pursue your holiness and present you as a daughter of God back to your heavenly Father more beautifully than when He gave you to me. And so I'm going to wash you with the Word, ensure that the Word is believed, that it is obeyed, and I'm going to love you to the point of laying down my life if necessary, sacrificing myself if necessary, for your glory and your holiness and your beauty and your good. Men, that, I think, is how we can define and picture headship from this text, which raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? What does that look like? And we're going to answer that next week. And we also have then a lot of questions raised from wives. What does that look like? And we're going to answer that next week as well. But when I say we're going to answer that next week, it's not because I already have that sermon written. So pray for me. <laughs> and uh, we're going to think through that and trust that the Lord will guide us as we look at this text and consider it. But we can and we must first see that beauty and the design and the purpose of marriage. And then in light of that glorious picture and opportunity, let's consider the roles of these. Now, to end a sermon like this can be weird because we've been talking about the way husbands need to lead and love their wives, and then we're going to come to the table. But if the design of marriage is true, the whole reason we consider the husband's love for his wife is so that we might reflect on and remember Christ's love for his church. And I do not have to tell you that unlike men, many of us who took on amazing wives when the Lord called us to be His bride, 
we were utterly unlovable. And we were by nature worthy of his wrath. And he loved us, even when we were his enemies, to the point that he died for us, shedding his blood so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be a beautifully holy bride of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to come to the table remembering Christ's life and death and resurrection and glorious reign so that we might keep in mind the responsibilities we have, husbands toward wives and ultimately wives toward husbands as well. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a moment of silence. Men, it may be that this morning we've seen our failures as we consider this text. It may be that we want to pray and, and ask forgiveness of the Lord. It may be that we want to spend time repenting. Wives, it may be that you want to spend time praying for your husband. Uh, God, would you make him a godly leader in our home, a godly head in our home. And then after a time of silence, as the ushers or as the musicians and pastors get in place to serve the table, we're going to come forward. Just dismissing a row at a time, the first followed by the second, you're going to come forward and you're going to take one stack of two cups, top one with juice, bottom with bread, and then you're going to return to your seat. And once we've all received and returned to our seats, together we'll eat and together we'll drink as the body of Christ, giving thanks for the redemption that we have in Him. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.